Psalms chapter number 72. It's a rather long psalm, but we'll read the whole psalm tonight. It's a great psalm. Verse number one, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass and showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their souls from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. And he shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily he shall, be, shall he be praised. There shall be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be, shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wonder, wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. What a wonderful psalm that is. The title above the psalm reads, A Psalm for Solomon. The psalm is almost certainly David's last uh, psalm. It's, almost his, it's, it's his last prayer uh, uh, for Solomon, his son, whom he had set up to take the throne upon David's death. It may in fact be that Solomon actually penned this psalm while David spoke the words that Solomon wrote. And in this psalm, David prays for a peaceful, righteous, and powerful kingdom to be ruled by his son Solomon. And truly, David's prayers or his prophecies were fulfilled in Solomon's reign. Solomon's wisdom was manifested in his equitable judgments. His wealth was an indication of the favor of God upon uh, his kingdom. And the construction of the temple was a display of the righteousness that ruled the nation. But beneath this glorious display of power, of peace, and of wisdom, uh, there laid a foundation with cracks in it. Uh, during his reign, Solomon succumbed to his own desire and married many, uh, many women from different uh, uh, nations. These women introduced the nation to idolatry. Solomon effectively put his own people, the children of, of God, into slavery to build uh, the temple. And ultimately, his sin set the nation up for a split, a divide, almost immediately upon his death. And so I ask, why is there such a disconnect between the prophecy of David, the prayer of David here in Psalm chapter 72, and the reality uh, that existed in Solomon's reign? I believe the primary application of the psalm is Solomon's reign, that historical reign. But we must see through Solomon's reign to see the prophetic anticipation of a coming kingdom, of the Messiah's kingdom. Not only are the details of Solomon's reign 
not only do they fall short of what we read in Psalm chapter 72, but there are simply declarations in this Psalms that can apply to none other but Jesus Christ. If you look at verse number 5, it says, They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. Verse 7, In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. Uh, verse 14, He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. Uh, verse 17, His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. There are statements, uh, statements that I've read, there are other statements in the psalm that can simply only apply to the kingdom that Christ will reign over. As much as the inscription over Psalm 72 is a psalm for Solomon, it could read a psalm, of Je a psalm about Jesus Christ. And even Jesus Himself affirmed what the psalm screams to us, and that is that even, even greater than Solomon is here. There are aspects of Solomon's person and kingdom that are certainly similar to Christ's. Uh, but even in Solomon's uh, wonderful aspects, he falls woefully short of the person and kingdom of Christ. You consider Solomon's wisdom. Wisdom was the one request of Solomon uh, when he was asked by God. He was given basically a blank check by God. He asked, Solomon asked God for wisdom. He possessed discernment to judge the people. He was a master of science and nature. He was a brilliant architect. Uh, he understood politics better than anyone. He, 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 he was wise. He, he, he demonstrated wisdom. Yet even in his premier attribute, attribute uh, Christ is greater. In fact, Christ is infinitely wiser than Solomon. Jesus is the one that created the laws that dictated the nature that Solomon was a master in. Uh, Jesus is not just wiser than Solomon, He is wisdom. As 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, But of Him are ye in, are, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom. And there is only one way to know the mind of God. Solomon cannot help you understand the mind of God, but Christ can because Christ is wisdom. Wisdom is personified in Jesus Christ. Solomon's wisdom was manifested in his great words. He was known as the preacher. He was a, a great poet. He wrote many proverbs. He wrote uh, the Song of Songs. He even wrote songs. But he does not compare to the one who bears the title, the Word, who is the Word. Indeed, the words of Solomon would be, would be without any meaning if it were not for the person of Jesus Christ. The Song of Songs has no meaning apart from Jesus Christ. Christ is the sum and substance of our song. So you, when you consider Solomon's wisdom, his words, Christ is much greater. When you consider Solomon's wealth, uh, the Bible tells us that he was so great in wealth that he made gold to be as stones, and as for silver, it was little accounted of. There was so much of the silver in the nation of Israel that they didn't even bother to count it. His kingdom was just overflowing in abundance and wealth. And even the queen of Sheba, when she saw the kingdom, said, The half was not told, told me. And yet, uh, his, his wealth was not inexhaustible. At the end of the day, if you did tally the wealth of Solomon, the wealth of Israel at that time, you would reach a number. And that is not the case with Christ. The only, way you can, the only way you can explain the wealth of Christ is to say that it is inexhaustible. It covers all 
expenses and then some. It is sufficient for all. It, it is truly inexhaustible. And his wealth is not in money, although he owns all the money, and he owns everything that the money can buy. But his wealth is in, is in abundant pardon. It is in his saving power. It is in his free grace. So when you consider the wealth of Christ and the wealth of Solomon, Christ is greater. When you consider Solomon's reign of peace, Christ is greater. Of course, David was established by God as king, and David was appointed by God to subdue their enemies, to, uh, to dominate their neighbors. And then upon David's death, Solomon took the throne and he established a reign of peace. Uh, that's what God had intended for Solomon. And, and Solomon did enjoy a long reign of peace in Israel. Yet Solomon falls far short of Christ in this, that Solomon can never bring pre peace to the hearts and minds of his subjects. And yet Christ can. Christ, in fact, is the only one that can grant peace to your mind and to your heart. And furthermore, in an even greater aspect, Solomon never took one of his subjects to the throne of God and made peace between God and man. Only Christ can do that because Christ, who is, as Paul put it, who is our peace. He is the only one capable of, of bringing us uh, to God and mediating, uh, uh, um, uh, settling our differences, settling uh, our, our, our debts to the God of heaven. So Christ is certainly greater than Solomon in wealth. He is greater than Solomon in words. He is greater than Solomon in wisdom. He is greater than Solomon in his reign. He is truly greater than Solomon. And the fulfillment of this psalm is not in Solomon's reign. It is ultimately in Christ's reign. Now, I don't have time to dive into the details of the uh, millennial reign of Jesus Christ, which is what we're talking about. That's outside of the scope of this message, but I do have to just kind of set the, the foundation here so that everybody here understands what we're talking about. When you talk about the reign of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, specifically physically speaking, there are primarily three views. There is the premillennial view of the coming of Christ, there is the postmillennial view, and then there is the amillennial view. The premillennial view says that Christ must come before the kingdom is established. He is the one that will establish this kingdom upon the earth. The postmillennial view says that the, that the kingdom will be established before Christ comes. Christ will come after the establishment of the kingdom. And the amillennial kingdom position believes that the, the, the thousand year reign that we read of in Revelation is not actually a physical kingdom. Uh, it, it, it has no physical manifestations. It is simply to be interpreted uh, as an allegory. Now we here at Victory, we are premillennialists. We believe that Christ is coming. He will, be the one, he will be the one to establish His kingdom upon the earth. And frankly, if you read the first six verses of Revelation chapter 20, I don't know how you can come to any other conclusion but that. That He is the one that will establish His kingdom upon the earth and then we will reign and rule with Him on the earth. We believe that the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. The rapture when we, which are alive and remain, are caught up to meet Him in the air. After the rapture, you have the seven-year tribulation. After the tribulation is ended, we believe that Christ will come back to the earth and He will establish His kingdom. And then for a thousand years, He will reign and rule and we will uh, reign and rule with Him. 
So when we speak of the kingdom of Christ, the coming kingdom of Christ that is yet to be established, that is what we're speaking of. We're speaking of that 1,000 year period of time where Jesus Christ will sit upon the throne. He will reign and rule upon this earth. This, this whole earth will be ruled by and will be the dominion of Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest, I get a little giddy when I talk about the kingdom of the coming kingdom of Christ. This is what makes me excited. Brother Blake can testify to this. We have many conversations about the kingdom uh, that is coming. This is, this is exciting stuff. Uh, it, it is absolutely exciting. It is thrilling to think about the fact that there is going to be one day that Christ will sit upon the throne of this earth. It is certainly true that He reigns and rules in my heart. But as you know and as you experience yourself, if, if you are in fact a child of God, that does not come without war. There is a part of me that wants to submit to the reign and the rule of Christ in my own heart. But there is also a part of me that is a rebel, that does not want to submit to the reign and rule of Christ in my own heart. And thankfully there is going to be a day where whether by the grave or by the rapture, my flesh is going to, be, is going to stay here. And with my flesh, that rebel is going to stay here as well. I will not carry that rebel anymore. And when I get to that kingdom, there will be no rebel. It will be my spirit will be in perfect union with his spirit. I will want, I, I obviously want to obey him now, but I will wholly want to obey him and submit to him. And on top of that, all of the external influences of this world will no longer be wicked. They will no longer be evil. They will be positive influences. We will want to serve the Lord together. We will want to worship the Lord together. And it is, a, it is going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. So I, 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 I love talking about and, and thinking about the reign of Christ. And to be honest with you, as we approach the, 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 uh, this Christmas season, and as most people spend their time thinking about the first coming of Christ. My mind is drawn to the second coming of Christ when He will establish His kingdom upon the earth. So I want us to look at this psalm, Psalm chapter 72, and consider four uh, aspects, if you will, of this coming kingdom, of this coming king and His kingdom. First of all, we see in verses 2 through 7 the character of His reign, the character of His reign. In these first few verses, we see a few dominant traits uh, it, it, that, that will be displayed in this kingdom. You see the idea of a judge and judgments. Verse 1, give the king thy judgments, O God. Verse 2, he shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. Verse 4, he shall judge the poor of the people. The second uh, idea here that we find is righteousness. Verse 1, give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. Verse 2, he shall judge thy people with righteousness. Verse 7, in his days shall the righteous flourish. The third concept that I'd like to draw your attention to is peace. Verse number 3, the mountains shall bring peace to the people. Verse 4, he shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. Verse 7, in his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. When Christ comes... He will be judge of all the world. And to be a judge, one must possess both wisdom and power. Wisdom to discern, to make the right decisions, and power to execute those judgments. Christ, of course, epitomizes both of those qualities. He is omniscient. He knows all things. 
He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And so he possesses the wisdom to execute judgment, and he possesses the power to execute judgment. And sometimes in our zeal and appreciation of the compassion of Jesus Christ, we neglect the, the, the side of Christ that is going to judge the world, that is going to rule the, the world with a rod of iron. Let me remind you that the Jesus that we read about here in Psalm chapter 72, John spoke of in Revelation chapter 19. He said, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Out of his, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thighs a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That sounds to me like a king who is going to execute judgment. But as we know, and as we see in modern day and throughout history, a king with the ability to execute judgment can be a dangerous thing. I think just recently there was, uh, of course, the leader Kim Jong-un is a dictator. Uh, and it was not that long ago when... One of his high-ranking officials in the military there was photographed sleeping while Kim Jong-un, the leader, was speaking. And because of that, because he happened to be tired when the leader was speaking, he was killed. Because that power uh, that, that, that Kim Jong-un possesses to kill whomever he pleases is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Volatility is not a characteristic that you want in a king uh, who, who you will be submitting to. And I'm, I'm glad to report to you that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is consistent. He is just. He is fair. And He is the one that will execute judgment. The second characteristic and the primary attribute of His coming kingdom is righteousness. Righteousness. And boy, in light of the world that we live today, is this not going to be a, a fresh thing, a wonderful thing? You think about what we experience today, corruption, deceit, wickedness. I mean, it is present and it is prominent and, and really preeminent every single day. But in Christ's society, truth will reign. Righteousness will reign supreme. The Word of God will be the law of the land. Won't that be a wonderful thing? Now, we've got to be real careful here because when we speak of the ideals of the kingdom, the coming kingdom, they are not necessarily ideals that we should transpose on our society today. Would I like to say that the Word of God should be the law of the land today? Yes. Yes, I would love to say that. However, there have been times in history where the Word of God has been incorporated into the law of the land. I think of the Reformers when they established their citadels of their cities Oftentimes they would incorporate the Word of God into their, into their laws. And that sounds like a great thing, except when you have disagreements on doctrine, when you have disagreements on interpretation of Scripture. There was one man in the early 1500s, Felix Mance. Felix Mance came to the conviction that he ought to practice, and he believed, believer's baptism. And so he practiced believer's baptism. And for that, he was martyred. He was killed for that. That was not in a Catholic province. That was in a, in a city that was run by reformers, people that we would agree with on some matters uh, of fundamental doctrine. 
And the key in a, in a society like this is biblical interpretation. We have to be right in our biblical interpretation. Yes, it's true that, that we all, I, I think all of us believe the Bible. In fact, we would affirm that the King James Bible is the Word of God. But that doesn't mean that we're 100% right in all matters of doctrine. In fact, I would suggest that there is not one person here that is 100% right in all matters of doctrine. Anybody here that is closest, I'm probably the closest, but, but I'm probably not at 100%, probably around that 98% range. But, but, but when Christ comes, he's the one that wrote this book. So he certainly understood what he intended when he wrote it. There will be no error. He will understand, he, in fact, he will execute judgment based upon his own words that he wrote in the Word of God. And so, so I think, it's, I think it's, it's, it's important that we understand that it is, that is, is important for us not to implement the entire Word of God as the law of the land now. Better uh, for us to simply defend our God-given rights and allow each to participate or to practice uh, soul liberty, freedom of conscience, and then when Christ comes, He can make the Word of God the law of the land, and He will certainly be just and true in doing so. Righteousness is the kingdom of Christ's primary attribute. And then we see peace. Peace. And what more could we expect from the one who bears the title Prince of Peace? And the world tries to get prosperity and peace while maintaining their unrighteousness. They don't want the righteousness. They simply want the peace and the prosperity that peace brings. But God does not allow man to have prosperity, true prosperity and true peace without righteousness. Prosperity is brought about by peace and peace is only brought about by righteousness. And in Christ's kingdom, there will be prosperity, there will be peace, but it will be brought about by true righteousness. You notice in verse number 7 that this peace endureth as long as the moon endureth. That is to say forever. It will, it will not cease. In Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, uh, Isaiah says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Uh, there will be no threat of disruption to this peace. There will be no need for weapons because there will be no war. And because there will be no weapons, uh, there will be a concentration on productivity, on, on serving one another, on serving Jesus Christ. And so peace brings about prosperity. Now, I, I ask you, does your heart long for this day when Christ's kingdom will be established upon the earth and there will be true righteousness, there will be truth, there will be peace upon the earth? So we've considered the character of his reign. Consider the compass of his reign as we see in verses 8 through 11. Look with me at verse number 8. <clears throat> he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. And we must keep in mind the historical application of this chapter. This, this is certainly speaking directly of the reign of Solomon. It could be that the reign of Solomon, his geographical bands, will span from the Mediterranean Sea to the Persian Gulf. But nevertheless, there is language here that can only apply to the Lord Jesus' coming kingdom. From the river unto the ends of the earth. 
And while some might argue that that's not to be taken literally, it's, it's uh, not to be taken literally, I would suggest that it is to point us to the kingdom, the coming kingdom of, of, of Christ. And the fact is that his kingdom will be established over all the earth. In verse number 8, the focus is on his dominion over all the places of the earth. It is from sea to sea and unto the ends of the earth. There will not be a place on the planet that escapes the reign of Jesus Christ. From the depths of the sea to the tops of Mount Everest, uh, to the densest of jungles and the driest of deserts, they'll all be under the reign and dominion of Jesus Christ. But also in verses 9 through 11, we see it speaks of the subjugation of all the people of the world. Verse 10 references the kings of Tarshish, the people of the isles, the kings of Sheba and Seba. Verse 11 expands that and just says, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. No king will escape the reign of Jesus Christ. The near, the distant, the most cultured, the most, the most uncivilized, the wealthy and the poor, they will all, all be under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will all give reverence to the King of Kings. Of their substance will they give to Christ's kingdom in his, his increase. And much like the Queen of Sheba, when she heard of the wonderful grandeur of Solomon's reign, she had to go see it for herself. So it will be in the millennial reign. The kings of this earth will have to come see him for themselves and come bow down at his feet. Notice in verse number 10 and verse 11, there is voluntary giving to the king. Gifts and offerings that we read about here are, are, are not mandatory. They are voluntary. And I cannot pr prove it conclusively, but I don't believe there will be taxation in the coming kingdom of Christ. There will be no need for taxation. There will be so much abundance in his kingdom that, that we will simply give of the great increase that is brought about by the prosperity of his, his reign. So the kingdom of Christ will span distance. It will span distant like no other kingdom in history has. So we consider the character and the compass of his reign. Now consider with me the compassion of his reign as we see in verses 12 through 16. You notice what we see here. We see the needy, verse 12. We see in verse 12 the poor, the helpless. The king is here to champion the cause of the helpless, the needy, and the poor. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus Christ as the one who takes a special interest in the needs of the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the down and outers, the downtrodden. And it's not that Jesus assigns a disciple to the needs of these needy, these, uh, these poor, and these helpless. It is He Himself who befriends the friendless. It is He who Himself who defends the helpless. He is the one that takes the special interest in the defenseless. And never has a poor man had a king like this king. He's not doing this for photo ops. He is doing this simply because he loves us. Simply because he is a compassionate king. And who would not want to submit to a king like this? Uh, I, I will not need a rod of iron to submit to a king who is compassionate. Who will look over my needs and will take care of me. And so we see, see that he is a compassionate king. In verses 15 and 16, we see the blessings of this reign. In verse 15, 
Uh, it can be a little confusing, the statement, uh, the end of the verse, prayer also should be made for him continually. I personally believe that that statement refers us back to the beginning of the verse, and he shall live, he shall live. And the idea here is, is found in 1 Kings chapter 1, as Zadok the priest is anointing King Solomon as king over Israel. Uh, the, the king said in, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 39, we read, And Zadok the priest took an horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet. All the people said, God save King Solomon. I believe that's how it's going to be in the millennial reign of Christ. We will all say, long live the King of Kings. And you notice in verse number 15 <clears throat> that we have both wealth and worship that is offered up to this king. To him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. Worship is always expressed by sacrifice, by giving something up. And, and so it will be that Christ will receive extravagant gifts out of the appreciation for his, uh, for his compassionate reign upon us. In verse number 16, we see abundance. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon. From small beginnings, a handful of corn grown in a hostile environment, top of the mountains, will come a great harvest, fruit that shall shake like Lebanon. And the kingdom of Christ will bring great material abundance to his subjects. And as, an, as a quick aside, I see the church in verse number 16. The church was born out of small beginnings, just a handful of disciples. It was grown in a hostile environment, the persecution of the early church. And out of that, many souls were added and are added to the church daily. And so we see that, and so certainly that is not the primary application of verse 16, but it is certainly interesting nonetheless. The greatest disappointment, to me at least, of Solomon's reign was that while he had great material abundance, there was a impoverished, a, a, an impoverished spiritual condition in the nation. They were led into idolatry pretty easily by, uh, by Solomon's, Solomon's wives. They were spiritually impoverished, but not so in Christ's kingdom. Just as materially abundant that it will be, it will be equally as spiritually abundant. There will be a, a wonderful time for worship, for service, for sacrifice to the King of Kings. And so we consider the character, the compass, and the compassion of this king. And I close with the continuance of this kingdom in verses 17 through verses 19. We have considered that Christ's kingdom will span a great distance. In fact, it will span all distance. And Christ's kingdom will also span all time. There will be no end to the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. As we see in verse 17, His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in Him, all nations shall call him blessed. His name is king of righteousness, as king of peace, king of kings, will endure forever. And what a glorious thing that will be. As you read these, these three verses, verses 17 through 19, you can't help but notice the idea of blessing. Blessing. Blessings repeated over and over throughout these, these verses. And I believe it's intended to draw our minds back to the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the, 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 there were three aspects to the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12 and expanded upon in Genesis chapter 15. There was the seed, 
the land and the blessing. The seed we read in Genesis, and he, that would be the Lord, brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. So there's the seed aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. There is the land aspect to the Abrahamic covenant. Again, we read, He said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. The land aspect. And then there is the blessing aspect. God said to Abram, I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And each of these aspects of the covenant are expanded upon in further covenants given to the nation of Israel beyond Abraham's life. The seed aspect is expanded upon in the Davidic covenant, that the Messiah would come through the seed of David, the line of David, and that he would sit upon the throne. And we see aspects of that in Psalm chapter 72. The land aspect is expanded upon in the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant as we find in the book of Deuteronomy. And it outlines the land that God will give them. We see aspects of that in Psalm chapter 72. The blessing aspect has yet to be expanded upon as of this writing. But in Jeremiah chapter 31, the blessing aspect is expanded again. Uh, and that is expanded in the new covenant. The new covenant. And all three of these covenants, the or all four, the Abrahamic covenant, the seed or the Davidic covenant, the land covenant, and the new covenant are all meant primarily for the nation of Israel. Uh, there is another covenant that stands between us as Gentiles and the nation of Israel. That is the Mosaic covenant, the law, the law. That is a conditional covenant. The other covenants, the three other covenants or four other covenants are unconditional covenants. It's all about what God would do for the nation of Israel. But the Mosaic Covenant is, you do, and so will I. And the only way a Gentile can partake of these covenants, these unconditional covenants that were meant for the nation of Israel, is if they forsake all of their upbringing, forsake everything, and partake of the Mosaic Covenant, partake of all of that is found therein in, in, in the law. And if we were to end the message there, it would be a, a doom and gloom message for us as Gentiles. We would not be partakers of any of these, these covenants. It would, it would seal our doom. But thankfully, there was a provision made for us. See, that Mosaic covenant, that law, stands as one might call it a middle wall of partition between us and the Jews that keeps us from participating in these covenants. And as Paul so succinctly put it in Ephesians chapter 2, in fact, if you would turn with me there, because this is how we partake in Christ's kingdom. Uh, we are partakers of the new covenant, and we are, uh, we are grafted into the nation of Israel. So Ephesians chapter 2, we read in verses number 11 through verses 13, Wherefore remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of, of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh 
the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. If you look down at verse number 19, we see, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 11, we are grafted in to his, to his, <clears throat> to his body. We have to be careful here because there are aspects of these covenants which are not for us, specifically the land covenant. The land that God promised the nation of Israel is for the nation of Israel. They will inherit the nation that God promised that they would inherit. But there are spiritual aspects to these covenants that we partake of. In fact, that we partake of now. You realize that forgiveness of sins is a provision provided to us by the new covenant. The indwelling of the Spirit of God is a provision that is given to us by the new covenant. Read, read Jeremiah chapter 31 and you will see that uh, for yourself. And so a lot of the spiritual blessings that we partake of are because of the new covenant. Uh, and, and it is because of this that we read in, chapter, in Psalm chapter 72 that we are blessed, that we have been put into... Uh, uh, I don't want to say we've been put into Israel because, because that, that, that's murky water, but we are partakers of the spiritual blessings that God intended for the nation of Israel. And as the psalmist says, says in verse number 18, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who, hath, who only doeth wondrous things. And truly when you consider how He allows us as Gentile pagans to partake of this coming kingdom, this wonderful coming kingdom, I echo those words. He only doeth wondrous things. And I feel like that lady in the Gospels who when she was speaking to Jesus, she said, she said yet the dogs under the table eat from, their, eat from their master's table. And when we come into the kingdom, if I am designated a little shack in the woods, I will be content. In fact, I will be overjoyed to be a partaker of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. 